Hello, everyone. Welcome to our listeners in the Big Apple from across the U.S. and from around the world. I'm Jeff Goodman, and you're tuned into Rediscovering New York. I'm a real estate broker during the day with Halstead Real Estate, but Rediscovering New York is not a program about real estate. It's usually about New York's neighborhoods and their extraordinary history. On most of our programs, I focus on a particular neighborhood, exploring not only its history, but also its current energy, texture, and vibe. What makes that neighborhood special? And I do it through interviews with urban historians, preservationists, local business owners, nonprofit organizations, artists, and other neighborhood personalities. Sometimes, like today, we host a show about an interesting part or theme of the city that's not focused on one particular neighborhood. Past shows have included the history of U.S. presidents who came or lived in New York, the history of the women's suffrage movement in Brooklyn, uh, the history of Irish immigrants who came to New York, and we've also explored the history of bicycles and cycling. You certainly can say that I cover a lot of interesting topics. In the future, we may journey to some of the city's parks or the subway or the age of a particular social or political movement like we're going to do tonight. Uh, and each show is available on podcast, on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and other podcast sites after the show broadcasts. This is the first of three special programs in honor of a very special and auspicious occasion in New York, the 50th anniversary of the Stonewall Uprising, which has also been known as the Stonewall Rebellion and the Stonewall Riots, although I don't think they were really riots, but we'll hear from someone who was there who can tell us about that. Um, the Stonewall is largely recognized as the beginning of the modern LGBT rights movement in the United States. And full disclosure, being a gay man, this is uh, especially exciting to me. I participated in the movement in one form or another, but not going back to, to Stonewall. Uh, in New York this month, we're not only commemorating and celebrating this anniversary, but also New York is host to this year's World Pride celebration, which likely will be the largest gathering of its kind ever in the world. And we are very pleased to have two special guests on our program. Our first guest is Michael Venturiello. Michael is a local historian, writer, educator, and proud New York City tour guide. He is the founder of Christopher Street Tours, an LGBTQ-owned and operated walking tour company that focuses solely on LGBT history. Michael has been featured as one of FindSpark's top LGBTQ plus influencers and thought leaders transforming the workplace through innovation and impact. Wow, what a title. He was also included in Eventbrite's Five to Follow, LGBTQIA plus event organizers in New York City for Pride and Beyond. This year, in honor of the 50th anniversary of the Stonewall Uprising, he was granted a foundation scholarship from the International LGBT Travel Association for his work with Christopher Street Tours. Michael has also been featured on PrideOut.com, Metrosource Magazine, and Attitude Magazine, and has worked with various organizations to provide tours, including HBO, Verizon, NYU, and Teach for America. Michael's tours have reached LGBTQ folks across 25 states and over 40 countries. Wow, that's amazing. He's currently working on a novel about the Stonewall Uprising, which I can hardly wait to read when it's out. Michael Venturiolo, welcome to Rediscovering New York. Thank you so much, uh, Jeff. It's great to be here. Excellent. We're all on the air now. Uh, are you from New York originally? I'm from upstate New York originally, so just a few hours north of here. Which, which town? Boston Spa, New York, near Saratoga Springs, if anyone is familiar. Okay, well, I know most people know Saratoga Springs. Um, when did you come to New York? 
I moved to New York about three years ago now, so going on my fourth year after I completed grad school in Buffalo and then moved down to the city. Oh, wow. So you're recently uh, moved to New York, but of course, home is where the heart is. So you're, uh, and of course, being from New York State, you're as New Yorker as they come. Uh, What was the inspiration for you to start Christopher Street Tours? I started writing my novel about the Stonewall Uprising about five years ago or so after a graduate thesis paper that I was writing about the impact of Stonewall and what happened afterwards. And I moved to the city about three years ago and was really just surprised and shocked that there wasn't anything like Christopher Street Tours. And what I mean by that is there were a lot of private tours that were happening about LGBTQ history and a lot of tours that popped up during the month of Pride. But Nothing really that was focused on LGBTQ history, LGBTQ owned and operated that provided tours all throughout the year. So a big part of our mission is access to this history. So we also offer free tours to LGBTQ youth. So that was something that inspired me to start Christopher Street Tours. Oh, great, great. Well, we'll ask you a little bit more about specific tours in your business at the beginning of our the second part of our of our interview. Um, we're going to spend most of our time tonight talking about the Stonewall Uprising and, and its aftermath, which I said before, some people called riots, but weren't really riots in the true sense of what we understand them to be by today's standards. But I would like to speak a little bit about what gay life was like in New York before Stonewall. Um, there were centers of gay life in New York. Uh, many people don't realize it, but there was actually a vibrant gay, bisexual, and even trans community in the Brooklyn waterfront, waterfront in the neighborhood that we now know as Dumbo, which actually continued around through the Second World War. Mm-hmm. Um, what was some of the, how did gay people get, get there? What was their, what was their motivation to, to, to live their lives there and to, and, and, and to congregate at the waterfront? Yeah, absolutely. I really appreciate this question because I think so many people see the start of gay life really with Stonewall, which is 1969, but really there was a whole movement and community before this time dating all the way back to the 1800s, really. So we start to see the Brooklyn waterfront come up maybe in the 1850s or so. And part of the reason why waterfronts in particular have always been so open to queer life in the city and outside of it is it's really on the outskirts of the more surveilled areas within the city and within the community. So it provides not 100% safe space, but a, a safer space for queer folks to be able to express themselves freely. So a lot of what we saw, particularly in the Brooklyn waterfront, was a lot of people, uh, queer artists, trans folks, folks of color that were able to come together as really just their true authentic selves um, and able to express themselves in those ways. And the community there actually continued to be the way it was until about the Second World War, until until the economic decline of the neighborhood. That's right. Well, by coincidence, everyone, there is an exhibition at the Brooklyn Historical Society, of which I happen to be a member, but nothing to do with putting it together. It's called On the Queer Waterfront. Waterfront. It's at the Dumbo Annex of the Brooklyn Historical Society. That's at 55 Water Street, and it's going to be there through August 4th. Um, there were other centers of gay life in New York before uh, the Second World War, and even around the turn of the last century, there was some uh, congregation of businesses down at the Bowery. Yes, so the continuation of that really spreads throughout the Bowery as well. So some kind of counterculture, subculture bars were in existence, communities were coming together there um, throughout the waterfront time, but also then even beyond that, before that moment that you were referencing. And... Um, 
a lot of people don't realize it too, but there was gay life in Harlem and substantial gay life in Harlem before Stonewalls, including the drag balls from the 20s. Mm -hmm. So the ball culture really dates all the way back to the 20s, as you mentioned, in New York City, which I can chat a little bit more about what that ball culture was like, specifically in Harlem and where that came from, was mostly white men at the time who were performing in fashion shows, particularly in drag, so a way for them to express themselves And where we come to know the Harlem ball culture, specifically for trans folks or people of color, is a way for them to express themselves in a way and sort of outside of the system where they were being discriminated against within the typical white ball culture that started in the 1920s or so. And I know as well that uh, uh, there were a lot of uh, uh, non-trans uh, and non-drag white men who would go up in Harlem to party, and they felt that they could be freer in some of these, in some bars in certain environments, and certain, and certainly private parties, which was a, actually a very big part of gay life during, during the Harlem Renaissance in the 20s and into the 30s. Um, then the Second World War happened. New York uh, became a booming city, uh, which also gave us rent regulation, among other things. Um, what were, how out were LGBT people living in New York uh, between the war and into the 50s right before Stonewall? So this is sort of a, a pivotal turning point, uh, turning point in the course of LGBTQ history. These types of underground and subculture movements are still happening, but really what changes the course of history here is in 1953 when President Eisenhower signs an executive order that adds homosexuality to the sodomy laws. And at that time, what happens, it's the first time where it's explicitly in law, in legal writing, where LGBTQ folks can be discriminated against because of their sexuality. So because of this, you have a lot of people that now are in fear in a way that they were before, but it's more so now written into law, the fear of losing their job, losing their apartment because of these discriminatory discriminatory practices that were written into the law. And some of it probably also uh, uh, was very much integrated in with the whole Red Scare and the McCarthy hearings. Uh, uh, of course, speaking of the McCarthy hearings, we can't but mention a, a black stain, uh, the infamous Roy Cohn, who was a closeted gay male who did some really horrendous stuff. Uh, but anyway, um, what were um, the gay? What were some of the gay organizations in New York before Stonewall that people who wanted to belong to organizations could actually? Um, and not just social, but but that could, that had some kind of political focus or or community focus. What what organizations existed? Yeah, so the two that were really important and that really stuck out were the Mattachine Society, which was actually known as the very first gay rights organization on a national level. There were certainly some that had existed in the 1920s or so, specifically in Chicago and other cities, but on a national level, and eventually coming to New York uh, with a smaller chapter the Mattachine Society, and then sort of paralleling that, the Daughters of Belitis, which came in 1955, um, and I didn't mention the Mattachine Society was in 1950. So within those first few years in the 50s, really a decade or so before Stonewall, uh, those two really powerful organizations came to light. And they were very much engaged in a certain level of protest for, for gay and lesbian rights. That's right. And that was really what set them apart. So other gay organizations that existed were more focused on the social components of LGBTQ life, which were also really important. But the Mattachine Society and the Daughters of Belitis really were at the front and center of gay rights and advocacy, specifically within these discriminatory practices at this time. You know, one of my favorite pictures from before Stonewall 
is that famous picture of Julius, which I'm uh, our listeners can't see, but which I'm holding up right now. A picture of uh, three men who went into Julius and uh, they had what's called the sip in. Do you want to talk about that for a bit? Sure, I would love to. So in 1966, you have these men that are part of the Mattachine Society. And what's important to understand here is gay bars were really one of the only parts of LGBTQ life where other people within the community could meet people in a safer way. This is before the time of Tinder and Facebook and AOL chat rooms and any of that where LGBTQ folks could meet in a safer way. And gay bars were really what that was. So what happened at Julius is there's these laws that are put into practice that aren't necessarily laws necessarily, but policies to say maybe around civil disobedience or if you've had too much to drink, the bartender has the right to remove you from that premise. But how the bartenders and the owners would interpret that is if you are someone perceived to be part of the LGBTQ community, so maybe a man that's more feminine presenting or a woman that's more masculine presenting, they could actually twist that law to say, we don't want to serve you because we think that you will cause this sense of civil disobedience. So what happens is these members of the Mattachine Society want to protest that law. They walk in to the Mattachine, uh, or sorry, to Julius, and because they're dressed in their suits and ties, their most masculine presenting selves, they're misinterpreted as straight men. So what happens is the bartender serves them just like any other patron of Julius, and it isn't until they then proclaim that they are openly homosexual men, part of the Mattachine Society, that the bartender reaches his hand over those glasses and says, you are no longer welcomed here. And that's the exact photo, that description that you were just holding up before. And there was someone there ready to snap that picture. That's right. Um, part of the village voice. Although I heard that at, that was, actually, I think, the third or fourth location. And by the time they, the other bartenders and other uh, didn't really care. And so they were drinking and got a little bit tipsy. And that is true. Tipsy, yes. <laughs> um, were the bars the principal method of LGBT people meeting and socializing and even creating community before before the raids? Before, before the riots, before Stonewall? Sure. So I think yes and no. I think the thing that was so unique about gay bars at the time was that it was really one of the only public spaces where people could go into part of the community and socialize and meet other people. There were certainly these aspects that we were talking about earlier, the Brooklyn waterfront, the ball cultures, where it was sort of these underground communities that were meeting, um, not in a literal way, but maybe in people's houses. And we were talking about ball culture. So sort of the idea of creating a house where people could go and find a family or a chosen family. So there were other spaces, but gay bars are really important because it was one of the only public arenas where gay people could meet and gather. But there were very particular kind of, of bar owners who owned these these bars. That's right. Uh, they were uh, either mafia or known as mafia. Um, would the police raid these businesses with regularity, or was this, or, or was the the raid that led to the to the uprising something that was unique, or, or something that was out of the out of the ordinary? It's, it was actually a pretty regular occurrence, and it depended on the bar owner's relationship with the mafia or with the police involvement to be able to say. If we, if the bar owners wanted to pay the mafia off, essentially, is how the riots came to be. So if they didn't, they would come and collect that money. Um, so it really just sort of depended. Mm. All right. Well, this sets us up for uh, talking about the night of the raid that led to the Stonewall Rebellion. We're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with Michael Venturiello. Stay tuned. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. 
listening to the Talking Alternative Network. Are you stuck in a rut? Negative thoughts, feelings, and conversations got you down? Hi, I'm Noreen Sumter, the Potentiator. Tune in every Tuesday at 9 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time and listen for new ideas on my show, Beyond Potential, Live Life Your Way, on talkradio.nyc. Who do you want to connect with? Are you an entrepreneur or intrapreneur looking to build your following? Welcome to our show. Follow Me Friday with Joan and Priya. Tune in every Friday at noon Eastern on talkradio.nyc. We're, We're your digital, digital connectors. connectors. Woo woo! What's that? <laughs> <laughs> Talking Alternative Radio, 24 hours a day. We're back. And you're back to Rediscovering New York. Uh, my first guest is Michael Venturiello of Christopher Street Tours. Michael, tell us about some of the tours that you have coming up uh, during Stonewall 50 in the next month. Yes. yes. Okay. Perfect. We have some really temperamental e- microphone. Here. <laughs> really exciting tours coming up. So, in addition to our regular walking tour, which is our gay liberation tour, which lasts about two hours throughout the course of the Greenwich Village, we're also doing some really exciting events called Tour and Talks which are our two-hour walking tour experience, but then in tandem with our um, our counterparts, so influential members of the community who are coming in to share part of their experience as well. Hmm. Uh, how can people get in touch with you or find out about your tours? Sure. So no, you it's could, a trick question, but... <laughs> you could go directly to our website, ChristopherStreetTours.com. You could also follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ChristopherStreetTours. Excellent. Um, I, I have not been on one of your tours yet, but I, but I look forward to going hopefully soon. Um, let's talk ab- about the night of the raid at the Stonewall. Um, what was the environment like uh, that, that led to this, this whole outpouring and people saying, no, we're not going to take it anymore? Yeah, that's a great question. I think to understand that there is a big part to be talked about in terms of the American cultural piece around the Stonewall uprising. So understanding the time period before This is really right after the civil rights movement that was happening, waves of feminism that were happening, Vietnam War and the anti-war protests. So all of those in which LGBTQ folks were included. So by the time 1969 rolls around, LGBTQ folks are really feeling like this is their time for their movement, which was sort of sparked by the events of Stonewall and sort of leading up to that particular night on June 28th. Um, so how we actually have a Stonewall veteran in the second half of our uh, of our show who's going to talk about specifically what happened at the bar and in the street that night. Um, how long did the so the people they didn't disperse and there was a protest. There was some something of a riot. What actually what actually happened outside the bar that night? Afterwards, Sure. So outside of the bar afterwards, after everyone is outside and they decide not to disperse, is the police officers come back out and essentially want to close down the Stonewall, which to a lot of people, they say, oh, they have they had nothing to fight for. But the reality is they really had everything to fight for. It was their freedom. It was their security. It was their home. 
So what happened was it got relatively aggressive in the sense of throwing, I've heard anything from stones and bricks and even pennies, which are made of copper and the police were cops. So they would throw the pennies and say dirty coppers and uh, drag queens would have their high heel shoes and, you know, that whole thing. So that's where it really starts. So much so where the police actually had to barricade themselves back inside of the Stonewall building. But that didn't stop the people outside. They would pull up uh, parking meters and use it as sort of a battering ram to get into the Stonewall riot. They were lighting garbage cans on fire and throwing them through the windows. And people say that the only part of the Stonewall that actually lit up in flames that night was the coat closet. So <laughs> literally and metaphorically, the closet went up in flames the night of Stonewall. And the precinct was only down the block. It was two blocks away. So the... Uh I wonder how long it took for reinforcements to come if they, if they got them. Not long. So reinforcements were certainly called, and that's when the police were inside. But as the uprising continued, so this is over the course of six nights, six consecutive nights the uprising lasts. So when, so when in, uh, into July, almost to July 4th, because the night, the night of the raid was uh, the 28th of June. The 28th, right. That's correct. So over the course of the uprising, they actually end up calling the tactical police force to come in, the ones with you know the big shields and all of that. So it continues to escalate. So what started, I've heard anywhere from around 800 people, but really grows and grows into 2,000 people throughout the course of those six nights, really with the most um, heavily presence or heavy presence on the third, fourth night, I would say. Mm. And what was it that had the protests finally die down? What was what was the event or the or announcements that that actually had people say, "Okay, we've accomplished something," or "We're just tired of doing this"? So it was a combination. It was you know after six consecutive nights until three or four in the morning. I think there was this feeling of being you know kind of bored and tired with the whole like showing up at day after day. But really, if you're asking, like the key moment of what happened was the mafia owners or the the renters, rather, they were renting the building at the time, they decided to close down the Stonewall. In one night, one weekend night, where they have all folks coming in, they would make up to $6,000 alone in just one night. This is 1969, so not accounting for inflation or anything like that. So if you multiply that by six, when you have all of these... Um, LGBTQ folks that are outside refusing to go in, essentially it just became not worth it for the owners or for the renters, rather, um, the mafia to keep it open. So they ended up closing. Hmm. Well, let's talk about the village for a second. Rediscovering New York is a program about neighborhoods and their history. Um, what was gay life like in the village before Stonewall? I would say gay life in the village was very, um, how to say... There was a lot of it, um, for lack of a better phrase. So I'll give you some examples. Right now, I think even still, we consider Greenwich Village to be a relatively prominent LGBTQ neighborhood, specifically around its history, but even its present. I think it's known for a lot of LGBTQ nightlife and just life in general. But before Stonewall and throughout the course of the uprising, it was even more so. The number of gay bars were just absolutely multiplied. There were a lot of office spaces that were meant for organizations like the Mattachine Society, a lot of people know or might know about the Oscar Wilde Memorial Bookshop, which was the very first LGBTQ-focused bookshop in the country. So a lot of these types of things, not just gay bars, but really areas around LGBTQ life were much more um, represented in the village at that time. 
Um, what, did Craig Rodwell open Oscar Wilde before Stonewall? He did. So it's an interesting bit of history in between the Julius Sippin, the protest that we were talking about, which occurred in 1966, and then Craig Rodwell, who was actually a part of the Mattachine Society at the Julius Sippin, opened the Oscar Wilde Memorial Bookshop just one year later in 1967. And then Stonewall occurs in 1969. Organizationally, what were some of the organizations that uh, grew, that got established, that grew, that got more members after the uprising? Sure. So one of them that I always like to mention, because specifically there was Sylvia Rivera and Marsha P. Johnson, who were two um, trans women of color activists, kind of leading the riots in a lot of ways. And one year after, they started an organization called STAR, which was the very first activism group dedicated to transgender rights. At the time, it's a little bit outdated of a term now, but it was the Street Transvestite Action Revolutionaries. And one year after Stonewall, they created that, amongst other groups. Um, the Gay Liberation Front was existed or, or was created, GLF. Just for a number's sake, at the time of the uprising in 1969, there were 50, about 50 or so, gay rights organizations. Just one year after Stonewall, that number goes from 50 to 1,500 gay rights organizations. And then just one more year, that goes from 1,500 to 2,500. And what's happening really across the country and across the world is that people are looking into New York City which at this time was not sort of the the beautiful, you know, Greenwich Village that we know it to be today. It was sort of this uh, grungy vibe to it. And people were looking in to say, well, if people at Stonewall could do it, we could do it too. And it really sparks the sense of um, in- inspiration and empowerment to really be able to effectively create change through these organizations. And there was a march on the around the first anniversary of the uprising called the Christopher Street... Liberation. Liberation yes. Day. Yes, yes, that's right. Okay. Uh, and that was more of a march. And then and that's what started the annual marches, which then became parades. Yes. Um, how was the Gay Activist Alliance in any way different from the Gay Liberation Front? Those, because that's a second prominent organization from the time that came out of Stonewall. Yeah. So after the time of Stonewall, these organizations really start to develop in a more full holistic way in some cases, but then even more of a specific way in other cases. So the Gay Liberation Front, for example, was responsible for hosting a lot of social events. In addition to some activism as well, some examples that people might be familiar with, they would have dances that they would charge a certain amount for, uh, oftentimes in some empty firehouses or firehouse buildings, specifically down in the village or a little bit further south. And it was really, again, sort of an alternative to the gay bar scene where you could come and dance and socialize with other people, whereas the Gay Activist Alliance was more focused on activism and advocacy efforts for the community. Mm. Well, moving through the 70s and into the 80s, um, what other neighborhoods started to become neighborhoods where, where gay people would live and live openly? I mean, the village, of course, was the first that we, well, actually Dumbo, which we, mm. <laughs> but that was mm-hmm. pre-Stonewall, and most New Yorkers would not have said it's a gay neighborhood, it's a queer neighborhood. But, uh, you know, after, after Stonewall and into the 70s and into the 80s, what were some of the other neighborhoods that became uh, gay, gayish? Sure. So into the 70s and the 80s, it's um, sort of a sad story, actually. But I would say the the neighborhood sort of took a shift into Chelsea and Hell's Kitchen area, which I would say are even now sort of the modern, modern known LGBTQ neighborhoods. And there's a really amazing book by a woman, Sarah Shulman. It's called Gentrification of the Mind. 
And really what she talks about is the gentrification of the village and sort of putting that in close conjunction with the AIDS epidemic, which is um, sort of where the sad part of the story comes in, is that so many people were losing their lives in the village, in particular to HIV or AIDS-related complications. And then there weren't protections necessarily with partners who were living in these apartments. So what would happen is people would be either kicked out of their apartment or people would vacate their apartment. So the rent became really expensive and then people started to move west and north a little bit towards Chelsea and Hell's Kitchen to sort of uh, get a fresh start. Mm. What ways has LGBT life changed more recently in New York? Uh, I think there's been a focus more recently specifically on trans folks and trans rights, specifically with the intersection of race. Um, So trans people of color, I think it's a big conversation in our community around how are we supporting everybody within the community. Um, It is said that more people uh, within that intersection of the community are either killed or murdered, um, which is an unfortunate situation now. So I think Partly, our community is really rallying around these efforts. Um, so I think that's a little bit talking about gender, transgender rights. Like I think that's a really big conversation right now in our community. Mm. What have been some of the major anniversaries of Stonewall over the years? Here we, here we are at Stonewall Fifty, mm-hmm. uh, and this certainly is is the biggest milestone that anyone who's been around you can can remember or that it's part of. What were some of the major milestones in terms of anniversaries, uh, aside from the 50th anniversary of Stonewall? Sure. So I think the 10th one was um, a big one, only because it's one of those things when you start something as large as the Christopher Street Liberation Day, which eventually turned into Pride, people didn't know what it would become. I think those four folks that started this movement, um, it was a small group, including Craig Rodwell, actually, and Brenda Howard, among the two others, To know that it would become sort of this international movement um, was really surprising. And then, of course, the 25th anniversary as well, where they had the largest pride flag known to date uh, over in San Francisco with Gilbert Baker. Um, So I would say that was a big anniversary as well. And of course, we also had the Gay Games in New York in 1994. That's correct. Very big. Actually, a little bit of personal history. I was involved with uh, an action called the UN Postcard Campaign, where uh, some friends of mine and I, we collected postcards uh, and eventually sent them to Secretary General Boutros Boutros Ghali, uh, uh, demanding that the General Assembly add sexual orientation to the UN Charter of Rights and Freedoms. Mm-hmm. I was also uh, 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 notable from a, an acceptance standpoint in that AT&T uh, had gone, had actually uh, reached out to gay people through its advertising after for the first time. I was in the actually business and I was part of that. That was in 1994. Uh, and then also became a sponsor of Stonewall 25 on very short notice, uh, given how much um, uh, given how much success they had. Um, looking forward, um, we've seen 50 years since Stonewall, Michael. Any uh, predictions or thoughts about what might happen with gay life in the next 50 years? I know that's a loaded question, and we have just a minute left. But uh, <laughs> sure, I'll try my best. I think ideally, and this is maybe from an idealistic perspective, it would be great to just see more rights coming to our community, more community among our community, and really learning how to best support each other as a community moving forward and continuing that fight for liberation and freedom. Mm. Oh, great. Michael Venturiello, thank you so much for being on Rediscovering New York. We have been speaking with Michael Venturiello, who is the founder and owner of Christopher Street Tours. You can find out about his tours and his business on www.christopherstreettours.com. 
and he has some great uh, programming coming up during uh, June, the month of June, which is uh, Stonewall 50 and World Pride. Uh, we're going to take a short break, but you're not going to want to miss this. When we come back, we're actually going to be speaking with someone who was at the Stonewall Inn that night of the raid and who was an integral part of the demonstrations and gay life in the village since then. Stay tuned. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. love or are you intrigued about New York City and its neighborhoods? I'm Jeff Goodman, host of Rediscovering New York, a weekly show that showcases New York's history and its extraordinary neighborhoods. Every Tuesday live at 7 p.m., we focus on a particular neighborhood and explore its history, its vibe, its feel, and its energy. Tune in live every Tuesday at 7 p.m. on talkradio.nyc. Talking Alternative Radio, 24 hours a day. We're back with our first special show about Stonewall, uh, recounting the Stonewall riots back in Stonewall Uprising 50 years ago this month. Uh, Support for Rediscovering New York comes from our sponsors, the Mark Myman team, mortgage strategist at Freedom Mortgage. For assistance in any kind of residential mortgage, Mark and his team can be reached at 646-330-4735. And support also comes from the law offices of Thomas Siaka, specializing in trusts, estate planning, and probate administration. Tom and his staff can be reached at 212-495-0317. Our show is about New York's neighborhoods and the myriad textures of our amazing city. Even though I work in real estate, one thing our show is not about is the business of real estate. There is a business of real estate, excuse me, but fear not, there is a really good one. Good Morning New York, Real Estate with Vince Rocco, my friend and colleague at Halstead. Vince's show airs live on Tuesday mornings at 9 a.m. and can be heard at voiceamerica.com and on podcast. You can like us on Facebook, Rediscovering New York with Jeff Goodman, and also follow me on Instagram, Jeff Goodman NYC. If you have questions or comments or would like to get on our show's mailing list, please email me, jeff at rediscoveringnewyork.nyc. One other note before we get to our second guest, when I'm not hosting the show, I am indeed a real estate agent in New York City, where I help my clients buy, sell, lease, and rent property. If you'd like to see how I can help you with your real estate needs, you can reach me and my team at 646-306-4761. Well, it's with great pleasure that we welcome our second guest to Rediscovering New York, Michael Levine. He's a Stonewall veteran. Um, Professionally, he's an urban planner with many years of experience in New York City community planning. Uh, I actually interned one summer in the Brooklyn office and found out that we knew a couple of people in common. Uh, Michael is an adjunct professor of urban planning at Pace University and director of the Community Planning Fellowship Program of the Fund for the City of New York. Prior to this, he was consulting planner for the Lower Manhattan Community Board, program director for the New York Metropolitan Chapter of the American Planning Association, and has held a variety of positions over a 30-year career at the New York Department of City Planning from 1968 to 1998. Michael's been very active in the New York LGBT communities for more than 50 years. 
He's been vice president of Gays and Lesbians and Planning Division of the American Planning Association. I didn't even know that that existed. Uh, president of Congregation Beit Simchat Torah, New York's LGBT synagogue, of which, of course, I've known about and attended, and president of the World Congress of Gay and Lesbian Jewish Organizations. Michael was at the Stonewall Inn at the night of the famous raid, and his experience has been recorded by StoryCorps and is archived on National Public Radio. Uh, and I will say that his interview here will be archived not only on talkradio.nyc, but also on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Spotify. Michael lives at Greenwich Village with his husband, Ray Ronaldo. Michael Levine, a hearty welcome to Rediscovering New York. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here tonight. It's great to have you. Um, you're from New York originally, aren't you? Yes, I'm a born and bred New Yorker. I was raised in Crown Heights in Brooklyn, where I lived until 1967. And at that point, you moved to the village. I moved to the village in 1967 when I had one more year of college to complete. I was 25 at that time, and I knew deep in my heart, although I was very closeted, had had only a few clandestine relationships with other males, I knew that I'm gay. Of course, the word at that time was homosexual. And I said, I can no longer continue to live in Brooklyn where I cannot practice what I feel I am. And so with only one year left to college and a little bit money in the bank that I had saved, I moved to Greenwich Village. And where did I move to? One and a half blocks from the Stonewall Inn. <laughs> I had all those years that I was living in Brooklyn, gone into the city, walked around the streets of Greenwich Village. I knew that that was the place where, quote unquote, all the queers were. And I went there every Saturday night just to walk around and get a feel for what life is like in Greenwich Village. But I knew I couldn't do anything unless I lived there. So finally, in 1967, I took an apartment a block and a half away from the Stonewall Inn. Well, as a real estate broker, I got to ask you, did it take a while for you to be able to find your apartment in 1967? Or? Well, let me answer that question. Uh, hold on a second. We have another... The much, uh let, okay, perfect. Let me answer that question for you in, in a way that might shock you. I found three apartments in one day, all located within a few blocks of the Stonewall Inn, and the rentals were, hold on to your seat, about $100 a month. So what had you choose the apartment you chose as opposed to the other ones? Because it was the largest studio apartment for the price of $130, which I know I could afford for 12 months only before I started working when I graduated from college. Hmm. Before we talk about the raid, I just want to talk about your career for a minute. You've had a long and illustrious career in urban planning. How did you get involved in, in, in urban planning in New York? I've always been interested in New York City. Being a Brooklyn boy coming from Crown Heights, to me, going to New York, and I'm going to say it as a New Yorker, meant Manhattan. I always loved to see Manhattan. I loved to come into the city by subway and watch high-rise buildings go up all over the place. I love the old neighborhoods. I love the new neighborhoods. And I said, I need to be part of this. In undergraduate school, as a political science and sociology major minor, I came in contact with a lot of professors at Hunter College who were teaching courses in urban affairs, which I had never heard of. And they said to me, Michael, you are a born city planner. You need to go to urban planning school, which I did. I graduated from Hunter College with an urban planning degree in 1968. And went to work for the Department of City Planning, one, two, three. I was very lucky at that time. Wow. Before I get, get into the village in Stonewall, I want to ask you, uh, in 1968, 
if it had been discovered that you were gay by the department, could could your job be at risk? My job could have been at risk, not overtly, but I would not have been. I was a provisional employee, as all city um, employees are, until I took a civil service exam in 1970. There was always the fear that I would not be promoted, that I could be, in fact, dismissed for a variety of reasons, lack of funding, lack of payroll. So I felt I had to stay in the closet as long as possible as a city employee. I knew once I took an exam to become a permanent city employee, it would still be difficult. I would be labeled as the queer, and I would not be promoted into other positions. So I kept it a big secret. Mm. What was it like for you as a gay man living in the village before, until the point of the Stonewall Uprising? To me, it was the greatest joy of my life. I never knew at age 25 that I could be that happy. I never knew how much fun it would be when I finally got up the courage to go into the Stonewall that Friday night after I moved to Greenwich Village. A block and a half away. A block (laughs) and a half away. But I had been observing it for more than a year. I waited for a group of young men to go in, and I slipped in together with them because I watched the routine on the street and knew you had to know the doorman to get in. So I slipped in with this other group of mostly recognizable gay men, some straight-looking men. It was a really, really great group. I just followed them right in. I w- and the Stonewall Inn at that time was two buildings, not one. The current building and the building to the right of it came in, And I checked my coat. I had a light jacket that night. Checked it into the coat room, stepped into the main floor, and saw men dancing, touching each other, and having fun together. And I was truly, truly in seventh heaven. Mm. And I said, this is where I belong. Wow. Were you out to anyone in your life aside from your close gay friends before before the raid and the, and the uprising? Oh, I never had any close gay friends at that time. I had a few clandestine affairs with other young men in Brooklyn who I knew were gay, but I had never known any gay people as friends or lovers in Greenwich Village. So when I was at the Stonewall, I was meeting friends for the first time. Hi, I'm Michael. I'll see you here again next week. It was the only place that I could meet and find and be friends with other gay men. Hmm. What was it like for you as a gay man who possibly could have lost your job when police could raid the bars you went to at any time? What what did it feel like going to them? Was there an element of fear? I mean, of course, there was excitement and desire that we've all had going into bars where we meet people and have a good time, but... What kind of fear did you have? Do you have any fear? I was always afraid. There was fear inside of me. I knew there were other bars in the village. I knew the West Village had far many more bars. I knew there were bars along West Street. But I was afraid to go to bars like that because I said those are the ones that are more likely to be raided. Those are the ones that are further on the outskirts. If I go to the Stonewall only a block and a half from where I live in the heart of Greenwich Village, I will not get involved in one of those unpleasant raids that I had heard so much about. I knew from people who I spoke to at the Stonewall that they're really after the owners of the bar. They're never after the patrons. If a raid ever happens, we simply leave. Mm. 
Aside from that night in the Stonewall on June 28th, uh, had you ever been in a bar that was raided before? I'd never, I had never been in a bar that was raided before, and I've never been in a bar that has been raided since. That was my only experience. Hmm. Well, before we get to what happened at the raid, I have one question. It's often been said, or maybe it's an urban legend, uh, that it was a hot night uh, that night of June 28th and that a lot of gay people were upset, were mourning by the death of Judy Garland. Was that Were those two factors that actually were going on or is that just part of the urban lore that's I not real? I truly believe, <laughs> as, as, as charming as that story is, that it is an urban legend. So far as I can remember, it wasn't that hot. I had a light jacket on. And although we were all very cognizant of the fact that Judy Garland had just passed away, I don't think that was on our mind. I think the reason we were hot that night is we were having a damn good time dancing on the dance floor, drinking and enjoying ourselves. And that was the heat that we all felt. Yes, everyone was aware that Judy Garland was gone, but I do not think that that was one of the reasons for the uprising. All right. Well, we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to be speaking. We're going to uh, speak with Michael Levine about his exact experiences the night of the raid. Be back in a moment. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. Best designs for your life start at home. I'm David Thiergartner, interior designer and host of At Home. Listen live Tuesday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern Time as we talk to the very best professionals about interior design and the design that's all around us right here on talkradio.nyc. Are you a conscious co-creator? Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness? I'm Sam Leibowitz, your Conscious Consultant. And on my show, The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, we will touch upon all these topics and more. Listen live at our new time on Thursdays at 12 noon Eastern Time. That's The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, Thursdays, 12 noon on talkradio.nyc. We're back to Rediscovering New York and our first special show for Stonewall 50, recounting the night of the Stonewall riots and also talking about Greenwich Village before and after Stonewall. Uh, our guest is Michael Levine, who a uh, longtime Greenwich Village resident and also Stonewall veteran, who was not only at the bar that night, but who was also on a date. So tell us about uh, that night of the raid, Michael. It was a very, very good night for me. I had been going to the Stonewall for two years, now since I moved to Greenwich Village in 1967, and I had met someone the week before who unfortunately could not spend the weekend with me because he had to tell his parents and he had done that. So we made a date that we would meet at the Stonewall the following week. 
which was the night of the Stonewall Raid. We were dancing on the main dance floor. We stopped. It was getting very, very hot, as it always did. The air was full of the smell of beer, cigarettes, cologne, and an awful lot of heat, perspiration particularly. So I went to the back bar because there were two bars. There was one at the building on the left side, one on the right side. And I went to buy two beers. And as I'm buying the two beers, suddenly the lights go up. The blaring music from the jukebox goes down. You could hear a pin drop. My boyfriend rushed up to me and said, this is a raid. Put the beers down. Let's leave. I was a little bit shocked at that point because I felt as though my legs can't move. Now I really am in one of those raids I've heard so much about. He said, stay cool, let's just leave. All of the people in the bar, mostly men, drag queens of course, a few lesbians, and even some straight people, filed out in a thin line through the main entrance. At that point I was shocked. I saw more police cars than I had ever seen in my whole life facing the entrance to the bar, and that frankly scared the heck out of me. I wasn't afraid of being arrested because I knew they weren't looking for us. I was afraid of being discovered. I was afraid that, okay, this is going to do it. Now everyone will know that I am gay because I am in a raid in a gay bar. We left. We went out into the street, and... I live, again, a block and a half away to the left on 10th Street. So I said to my boyfriend, let's go back to my place early. We'll get some beers and we'll have some fun in my apartment. We made it half a block away to Waverly Place. And he tapped me on the shoulder and he said, turn around for a second. Look at what's happening outside. And as we turned around, we saw the gay guys, the drag queens, the lesbians, the few straight people were not leaving Crowds of people were gathering around, coming from other locations, particularly bars and restaurants on 7th Avenue, and nobody was leaving. So that's what changed, is that in all other raids, people just dispersed and left, but that night everyone said, no, we're not leaving. Everyone left in fear. Now, I don't recall the Stonewall ever having been raided before, and again, I say the drag queens are the ones who made the first move. They started to dance in the street. They stood in front of the bar. They grasped arms together. They imitated the Rockettes, and they danced down the street toward Waverly Place, just away from Christopher Park, into the open space. And we stood there and watched and laughed and clapped and applauded, and they terrified the police. That's when the police ran back into the bar. Suddenly, the drag queens would turn around. They would face the police, and they would chase after them. In a way, they were taunting them. And that's when the police ran back into the bar. And the police uh, ran away from the drag queens. They ran away from the drag queens. <laughs> it was wonderful to watch that happening for the first time. What was happening on the street is that everyone was saying, if you won't let us dance inside, we're going to dance right out here in the street, and we're going to stay all night. And that was an important statement. And the police truly understood it. That's when they barricaded themselves inside the stone wall. And that's when the stories of the ash cans and the ripped up uh, parking meters occurred. I frankly didn't see any of it. 
any of that, any of that. That's why I say it was an up- uprising, not a riot, not a mm. rebellion. It was an uprising in which all of us participated. We all said we're not leaving. We all said we're having fun on the street. And that went on for many hours all night. Frankly, we got tired after a certain point and we did leave. But we also noticed more and more people were coming from other locations to watch what was happening outside the stone wall. The difficulties occurred the next few nights. Saturday night, we went back again. We were together. I was together with my boyfriend for the weekend. In the street? In the street. Everyone came out, and the stone wall was closed, and it wasn't reopening. And there was a sign on the door that said, closed, and the people wouldn't leave, and the kids wouldn't leave. And again, they were dancing in the street. But this time, the police came with reinforcements and started to break up the crowd. Even though there was nothing, they were just, people were just lingering. The people cops, the, people the were lingering. Right the, same, the same people that were there the night before were there, but people all over the city had heard what would happen. Gay people had heard what had happened, and they came, and even though they weren't there the night before, they came for the second night. And that's when I understand it. I was there with my boyfriend. We stayed for a while again. We went home afterward. We may have gone for a beer to another place. That's when we started to really feel as though something is happening here. Again, we're dancing in the street because they will not let us dance inside, but this is starting to get a little bit hairy. Sunday night was the really frightening night, which you've heard my predecessors speak about. The mayor knew more people were coming. It made it to all the newspapers. Everyone knew something was happening in Greenwich Village. Something was happening at the Stonewall. And that's when words like riot and rebellion started to happen. And suddenly, more and more people were there, more people than had ever been in the bar, were crowding the streets. And we saw the tactical police force with their white motorcycles and their white helmets lining up on 7th Avenue, lining up and down Christopher Street, and coming closer and closer to the crowds in front of the bar. A lot of people began to disperse and run, because this is serious. When you have the tactical police force joining in to break up a crowd of kids who just want to dance, and a group of people from around the city who want to be part of whatever it is that's happening, although no one was sure exactly what was happening, we all knew something significant was going on. I did not stay as long that night. I was alone that night, and it really frightened me to see the tactical police force. I'm not sure how many nights it continued, because on Monday I had to go back to work, and I did not go there Monday, Tuesday, or Wednesday. But at that point, the press was full of all of the accounts of what had occurred. And again, in my mind's eye, it is definitely the beginning of the gay rights movement. It was not a riot, although there may have been some violence. It was not a rebellion. We weren't rebelling against society. We were uprising. We were saying that we're here, we're going to stay here, and we are who we are, and we're what we are, and we're going to continue to be who we are and what we are, and you, the city of New York, must accept us for what we are. And that's what Stonewall meant to all of us. Fifty years later, I can clearly say, that's what Stonewall meant for me. It made me a closeted gay man come out of the closet. My friends, my relatives all said to me after that weekend, we know you go to places like that, are you okay? I suddenly was no longer closeted. That's what Stonewall did for me. Wow. Michael, remarkable recounting of the riots, uh, the uprising, and your experiences. Thank you so much. Thank you for for being here with us, and thank you so much for being there 
and being part of, of the movement and being part of the people who said, we're not going to take this anymore and we're going to have a new kind of life in the city and in our community. Well, we've just had a riveting interview with Michael Levine, a longtime village resident and Stonewall veteran. Um, if you have comments or questions about the show would like to get on our mailing list, please email me, jeff at rediscoveringnewyork.nyc. You can like us on Facebook, Rediscovering New York with Jeff Goodman, and also follow me on Instagram at jeffgoodmannyc. Once again, I'd like to thank, thank our sponsors, the Mark Myman team, mortgage strategists at Freedom Mortgage, and the law offices of Thomas Siaka, specializing in trusts, estate planning, and probate administration. And don't forget, when I'm not hosting the show, I'm a real estate agent at Halstead, and whether you're selling, buying, leasing, or renting, my team and I provide our clients with the best service and expertise in New York City real estate. You can reach me at 646-306-4761. Our producer is Ralph Storier. Our engineer is Sam Lebowitz. Our special consultant is David Griffin of Landmark Branding. Stay tuned for At Home with David Thiergartner, coming up next at 8 p.m. right here on talkradio.nyc. And a very special guest, Louis Gagliano of Le Fleur d'Arlem. And at 9 p.m., Beyond Potential, Living Life Your Way with my friend Noreen Sumter. Uh, thanks for listening. We will see you next time. You are listening to the Talking Alternative Network. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. Are you stuck in a rut? Negative thoughts, feelings, and conversations got you down? Hi, I'm Noreen Sumter, the Potentiator. Tune in every Tuesday at 9 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time and listen for new ideas on my show, Beyond Potential, Live Life Your Way, on talkradio.nyc. Hey, all you crazy listeners. Looking to boost your business? Why not advertise on Talking Alternative with very reasonable rates? Interested? Simply email at info at talkingalternative.com. The best designs for your life start at home. I'm David Thiergartner, interior designer and host of At Home. Listen live Tuesday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern Time as we talk to the very best professionals about interior design and the design that's all around us right here on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network at www.talkingalternative.com. Now, broadcasting 24 hours a day. Talking Alternative. Are you a conscious co-creator? Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness? I'm Sam Leibowitz, your Conscious Consultant, and on my show, The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, we will touch upon all these topics and more. Listen live at our new time on Thursdays at 12 noon Eastern Time. That's The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, Thursdays, 12 noon on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network.